book of Nahum, and just to reassure you, we will be taking a break from uh, the series on the Minor Prophets to focus in on Christmas themes the next uh, few weeks. I'm going to begin with a rather extended quotation, and I, I edited it down from what I had, but it's still quite long, but it's so important, and so if I could uh, beg your indulgence and really ask you to tune in for the next minute or so, well, actually the next 35 minutes, <laughs> that would be nice. These words were spoken January the 7th, 1855, by a young man, 20 years old, who stepped into a pulpit in England before several thousand people. Here's what he said. The proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in thinking about God. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of God. And while this subject is humbling and expanding, it is also a soothing. Do you want to lose your sorrow? Do you desire to drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in God's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak to the winds of trials as devout meditation upon the subject of God. The man was 20 years old, pastored a church of several thousand, Charles Spurgeon, when he wrote these words. The book of Nahum begins with a magnificent statement about the character of God, hence the title of the message, Our Awesome God. The specific focus of Nahum's prophecy is Nineveh, the grandest city of that time in history, the seventh, uh, seven centuries before the time of Christ, but it was a wicked city. And for hundreds of years, it was the dread of Western Asia. It was the capital of crushing the tyranny. It was the epitome of cruel torture. But you know that God is not intimidated by godless human authority. God doesn't shake in his boots when leaders shake their fist at him. I'd like us to turn to Psalm 2 and just listen to what God says about the nations. Why are the nations in an uproar? The peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart 
and cast away their cords from us. Does God tremble? Is God confused? Does God wonder, what am I going to do now because the nations are angry at me? Listen, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king. Referring, of course, to a prediction about Jesus. I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The prophet Nahum thunders divine denunciations against this proud, powerful city of Nineveh. He's prophesying about 650 B.C. Now, Nahum, the word Nahum means comfort or consolation. But he speaks no comfort to Nineveh. He is predicting the overthrow of Nineveh by the Babylonians that would happen a few years in the future in 612 B.C. Recall what we learned from Jonah. When he proclaimed a message of impending doom 100 to 150 years before Nahum, the city repented and there was a tremendous revival, many conversions. Tens of thousands of people turned away from their wickedness and came to know God. That was then, this is now. And Nahum levels charges against Nineveh because they had returned to their wicked ways. So we have the, the destruction of Nineveh declared in chapter 1. And the reason that I have given the title for the message, Our Awesome God, and the reason I'll spend probably two-thirds or more of my message just on the first chapter is because it gives a description of God which is lost to our culture. The jealous, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. Now the view of God so popular and appealing in our culture is light years away from this description and many other descriptions like this of God in the Bible. Our culture and many Christians, sadly, in our culture have domesticated God. They have made him into an image that they prefer and have not accepted the totality of his character as revealed in the Bible. The caricature of God so popular today is that of a divine Santa Claus who hands out his goodies whether you have been naughty or nice. In other words, your beliefs and behavior don't matter. God will accept you and love you, and in the end, he will take you to his heaven, and your character doesn't matter, your conduct doesn't matter. He won't judge, he will not condemn. So says our culture. So says an increasing number of people within the evangelical church. That is not the God of the Bible. He is a jealous God. Now, that doesn't sound right to our ears. We believe that jealousy is a bad thing. It's an evil thing. And how can God be a jealous God? Well, most, if not all human, well, not all human jealousy, but most human jealousy is evil because it is self-centered. It is self-promoting. It springs from anger and pride. But the jealousy of God is not like the jealousy of man. 
Divine jealousy means that God seeks to protect his own honor. He desires an exclusive relationship with his covenant people and zealously protects that relationship, demanding that he alone be worshipped with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is sovereign over all. He is Lord. And to place anything, anything, any object, any pursuit, and this is where the application comes to us, anything we desire more than God is idolatry. Exodus 20, verse 3 to 6, tells us that God is a jealous God. Because he demands our allegiance completely in its totality. God is concerned about the honor of his name. One writer says, the fact that every one of us are not in hell this moment can be attributed to the passion of God for his glory. It's the passion of God for his glory whereby he reaches out to ungodly people and saves them from their sins. Isaiah chapter 48, 9 to 11, for my name's sake, now listen to this, not primarily for our sake, for my name's sake, God is speaking, I defer my anger for the sake of my praise. I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. And every other truth in the Old and New Testament flows from the fact that God's primary concern is his own name, his own glory. We need to grasp this grand reality because we live in a man-centered me-centered, self-centered culture. We are accustomed to thinking of ourselves first. We have even misconstrued the cross to mean it's all about me. It's all about my value, my worth, my salvation. We have changed the very essence of the cross to be about us. It's not. It's about the glory of God the grace of God. The cross does not prove my value. It proves my need. The cross does not proclaim how good I am. It proclaims how gracious God is. The cross is about his holiness and my sinfulness. If we hold the view that the cross is primarily about me, it follows that the Christian life is primarily about me that God exists to meet my needs. He must respond to my desires and my demands. But dear folks, you will never be happy. You will never enter into the blessing of God if you see the cross and the gospel as being all about you. God is jealous. He has a passionate concern for his own glory. But that does not make him a selfish egomaniac. He does not demand honor and praise because of some deficiency in his nature. He's not overly sensitive, he's not easily offended, and therefore requires our praise to build up his sense of worth and his ego. That may be true of us, but it's not true of God. 
John Piper writes, for God's self-exaltation is the highest virtue. When he does all things for the praise of his glory, he preserves for us and offers to us the only thing in the entire world that can satisfy our longings. What is the only thing in the world that can satisfy our longings? The answer is God himself. God longs for us to be intensely happy. And for this to become a reality, we must, we must, we must get our minds off ourselves, get our minds off our desires and needs, and focus them on God and who he is. You will be blessed with incredible goal when your daily activity and choices revolve around the name, the glory of God. I've taken considerable time to explain the meaning of this term, the jealousy of God, because from it flows all the great realities in life. But the truth of God's jealousy, that is, God is passionate for preserving and protecting his glory, leads naturally to the second thing that Nahum says about God, that he is an avenging God. Now again, we believe that vengeance is wrong. In fact, the Bible tells us as people not to be vengeful, but to leave vengeance to the Lord. Human vengeance is ugly. It is sinful. It is destructive and unattractive. The word avenging or vengeance means retaliatory punishment for wrong done. It means getting even plus in human understanding. But the, ven- but the wrath of God, the, the avenging of God means he defends his glorious name while maintaining justice and acting to rescue and vindicate his people. God's vengeance is rising up and fighting against all who would dishonor him and usurp his authority. If you turn with me for a few moments over to Romans chapter 1, this provides more insights into this aspect of God's nature. God has revealed his existence and power in the created order. We read that in Romans 1, 18 and following. And that knowledge of God in nature is readily available for the entire human race. But man suppresses that truth. And so we read, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 20 goes on to experience how, or explain how the invisible attributes of God, primarily his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, being understood through the universe. So that knowledge of God is available. Even though they knew God, Paul goes on to say in verse 21, they did not honor him. <clears throat> this is the great sin of the human race, not honoring God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. And professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for corruptible things. In other words, man ends up worshiping creation, not the creator. He ends up putting a priority in his life on things, not on 
the sovereign God, as sadly we often do in our culture. So imagine exchanging the glory of the uncreated, eternally magnificent and majestic God for stuff, for things, for idols. We become like Esau who traded the blessing of God for a bowl of soup. Then Paul levels the charge against the human race. God gave them over. Three times he says that, 24, 26, and 28. And one of the evidences of God giving a person or culture over is homosexuality. That's mentioned later on. But there are also a whole list of other sins from 28 through 32. So God gives them over. In effect, God says this, you don't want me, you don't have to have me. You don't accept my self-revelation, have it your way. I will let you live as you please. I will abandon you to your own ways, but you will pay a price now and through all eternity. God is an avenging God, and he's always just. He's always just in his avenging his own nature. He's a wrathful God. Again, this is what the, uh, the prophet says. A jealous and avenging God, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. Again, we, we don't like to use these terms. But Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Again, let's not misunderstood, misunderstand what the wrath of God is. It is not that God throws a, tenter, a temper tantrum. He does not fly off the handle and go a ballistic. It is not an irrational, unjustified exhibition of rage, a sort of off-the-wall kind of anger. That may be our wrath, that's not God's wrath. God's wrath is a settled disposition and inner passion toward both sin and the sinner. Now we often hear people say, God is angry with sin but not the sinner. That's a distinction without a difference. Where is the sin found? Not in trees, not in mountains, not in rocks, not in non-living entities or the lower forms of life. Sin is found in the sinner. God's wrath is against people who reject his mercy. He is slow to anger. Now we got some good news. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. This is a sweet truth. God is long-suffering. You would not be here today if this were not true. I would not be preaching to you if God were not slow to anger. If God sent his judgment, his hammer of judgment, the very instant we thought or spoke or did anything wrong, we wouldn't live two minutes. How thankful we ought to be for the fact that God is slow to anger. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans 2, verses 4 and 5, that God's patience, his slowness to anger, is meant to lead us to repentance. He is great in power. Now, don't misunderstand this. 
Uh, some people think that because God delays his wrath, he can't do anything about sin. Oh, no, no. Or he ignores it. No, he doesn't do that. God could stop all sinning in the world in a heartbeat. And someday he will. But we are living now in an age of grace. But he is a God of great power. He can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. He is good and gracious. I love this verse. Verse 7, the Lord is good and a stronghold in the days of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. We need a God who can deliver us from our, our temptations, who can rescue us from our sins, who can strengthen us in our trials. So this is talking about going to God in trust and faith and experiencing him as a good God who is a stronghold and a refuge. So let me ask you some questions. Do you acknowledge moment by moment your dependence upon God to help you and sustain you? Do you often throughout the waking hours of a day, do you confess your need to God? Are you aware at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 10 o'clock at night or whenever that God is there for you and God is there to hear you and to help you? The more we ponder how feeble and frail and how sinful and ignorant we are, the more we will call out to God to help us in our multitude of needs. Such thoughts will lead us to another conclusion. We are not in charge. We are dependent creatures. We control nothing. Nineveh was a powerful nation, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And it had power in the world for several hundred years. It thought that there was no human entity, in fact, no, no divine being, could stop them from exercising their authority. They were at the top of the pile. Everybody had to bow to Nineveh. How wrong they were. They would soon find out that uh, God was not about to bow. The power of God is illustrated in verses 4 through 6. And now we get, we'll just move very, very um, quickly through the rest of the book. And I promise we will be through by, well, when I finish. <clears throat> the certainty of God's judgment is stated in verses 4 and 5. Uh, God is powerful over nature. He rebukes the sea, he makes it dry, he dries up the rivers. Mountains quake because of him. The hills, hills dissolve. So there's a statement about the power of God over nature. So nature is at the mercy of this sovereign, powerful God. So what mere mortal man can stand before God's indignation? Look at verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are broken up by him. So the power of God is illustrated. The punishment against Nineveh is stated. And now Nahum turns abruptly from general statements about the nature of God to, to Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh had tried everything they could, humanly speaking, to ward off the Babylonians who were going to come a few years down the road and defeat them. Uh, 
and we have a picture of their defeat. It's seen as an overwhelming flood. In, in verse 9, no need, no need for, for God to send someone by a second time to punish Nineveh because God would do a good job the first time. In, 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 in verse 12, uh, thus says the Lord, though they are full strength and likewise many, referring to the Assyrians, even so they'll be cut off and pass away. The Assyrians were much more numerous in their military might compared to other nations and certainly compared to um, Judah. You know, we have an account in Scripture where a Sennacherib, who was an Assyrian king, 185,000 of his army that surrounded a Jerusalem at, at a point in history, and Jerusalem had no hope, no hope of defeating a Sennacherib's army. They woke up the next day, 185,000 soldiers dead. What happened? The angel came through God's power and destroyed them. Then verse 14 tells that the destruction will be so thorough, so complete, that Nineveh will be lost from history, and it was. They did not know where Nineveh was as a city, although history says it was a great and a marvelous city. They only discovered the ruins of Nineveh in 1840. Well, Nineveh was of the opinion that they were a law unto themselves with no accountability to God. And the lesson for here is this, that for us is this, that we sometimes get into this mode of thinking that says, I can live life on my own terms. I don't have to listen to God. I can call the shots. God's laws don't apply to me. I can pursue satisfaction and success the way I want to. And I would say to all of us, let's not trifle with God. Don't belittle his glory. Don't minimize his power. We can be crushed and broken in a moment of time. The destruction of Nineveh is detailed in chapter 2. The city is destroyed, and, and Nahum, in kind of a satire, instructs the people of Nineveh to prepare for battle. Uh, The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. This is a satire. It's the prophet saying, and God saying to the prophet, go ahead, defend yourself. Do everything you can to stop the invasion. Isn't going to work. Because God had decreed the destruction of Nineveh. So the soldiers in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, they hurriedly take up their, their possessions for, for, for battle. It would be a wasted effort. In verse 5, there is much confusion as everybody seems to be running around, not knowing what to do. In verse 10, the people are overcome by terror and they flee the city. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting, knees are knocking, knees are knocking. Also anguish in the whole body. Their faces have grown pale. They were overcome by terror. And then there's a, there's a horrible statement in verse 13. Behold, I am against you. This is God speaking. God says to Nineveh, I am against you. 
When the sovereign God of the universe declares, I am against you, hope is gone. In Romans 8.31, we read that if God be for us, who can be against us? The demonic powers, human powers, no matter what powers exist out there, if God is for us, no one can successfully be against us. But the reverse is true. If God is not for us, if he is against us, we are hopeless. So the solution is flee to the cross. Receive mercy. God is for you at the cross. The destruction of Nineveh is demanded in chapter 3. And the sins of the city are spelled out. Out of this arrogance that they had about being... Um, indestructible, 100-foot walls, uh, walls so wide that you could race three chariots around them, several hundred towers, another 100 feet above the walls. Such was Nineveh of the ancient world. But they were a wicked, violent, brutal city. Woe to the bloody city. I won't go into a lot of detail here, but Nineveh was the most vicious and brutal empire you can imagine. They impaled people on sticks, cut off fingers, noses, tongues, ears, heads, skinned people alive. That was their method of operation. That's what they did to their enemies. They are deceitful. They are full of lies. They plundered. They were involved in witchcraft, chapter 3 and verse 4, into a sorceries. In response to all this, again, God declares in verse 5, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. And he says that they would vanish from history, friendless and unmourned, verses 6 and 7. I will throw filth on, your, on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. You will come... A, it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Nineveh will have nobody who will be mourning them, grieving them. The world will be glad that Nineveh is gone. Well, in verse 12, that defeat would be so easy in the sight of God because, again, God is using a pagan power, Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, to defeat another pagan nation, Assyria. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit, verse 12 of chapter 3. When shaken, they will fall into the eater's mouth. Defeating this powerful Nineveh, this arrogant Nineveh, is like shaking ripe fruit off a tree. Down it goes. No trouble for God to do that at all. And they could take every precaution they wanted. Draw yourself water from the, for the sea. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar and take hold of the brick. You'll bring, build up your fortification. Multiply yourself like creeping locusts. Nineveh, do anything you want to do to protect yourself. It ain't going to work because God had made a decision and their military leaders could they look to their military 
military leaders and their civil leaders? No. Your guardsmen are like swarming locusts. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers. In other words, they fly away. When the city most needs leadership, the leadership is gone, nowhere to be found. No one will pity her or come to her rescue. Reminds us of Babylon in Revelation 18, 17, 18, and 19. There's the woman, the false church, riding the beast, the political power of that time. And then the world church and the new world order, which is coming, I believe that it's coming, will uh, the new world order, the political system, the economic system will turn against the church. And then God will send a mighty destruction on Babylon, the economic center of the world of the end times. Where that will be located, we can't be quite sure. But everybody will look to that place for survival, as our world seems to be doing now. Let's unite our currencies. Let's find some common world uh, power. Let's set aside our religious differences, our economic differences. Let's pool all our resources and form one mighty world order, and then we will have peace on earth. That's the thinking of our culture. But in Revelation 19, when God sends his destruction upon Babylon, the uh, people of commerce, commerce of the world are grieving as they see the city, wherever it is, going up in smoke because all their wealth, all their resources, all their hope, everything that is tied to the economy and to prosperity is burned. It's gone. And the world is grieving and the saints are rejoicing. And in Nehemiah, we have the same situation. We have the other nations... The other peoples rejoicing at the destruction of Nineveh. This prophecy has a double purpose. To strike fear into the hearts of all who proudly defy God and believe that they are in control, whether it's nations or individuals. I'm in charge of my life. I'm in charge of my future. I can create my own code of ethics or lack of code of ethics. I can do anything I want to do because... I'm in charge. Nineveh thought that way. People think this way also. And this is to strike fear into the hearts of people who have this mindset. And secondly, it's meant to comfort the people of God. We are surrounded by evil in our culture. And God knows the oppression. God knows the stress and the sorrow this often causes in our hearts. God knows how his church is persecuted in many parts of the world, and that persecution could come here. And God says, you trust in me. You have your refuge in me, and I will deliver you. 150 years before Nahum, the time of Jonah, was an age of grace for Nineveh, and God delivered them and saved them. We are living in an age of grace right now. Judgment is, is, is imminent, but it hasn't come yet. So there's deliverance and there is hope. 
because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you look at evil and you are troubled by evil and you say, oh God, how long can this go on? And when you're worried about the impact of that evil upon your own soul, your own family, take comfort in the fact that there's a God who sees and knows, who understands, and who is taking notice of all these things and will do something about it. Take comfort in Psalm 11, verse 12. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. And Psalm 13, 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. May it not be said of us. May God not be forced to say of us, I am against you. May it be said of us, if we are in Christ, who can be against us? Who is more powerful than Jesus? No one. Who can rescue and save and deliver better than Jesus? No one. And if we are in Christ, we cannot be defeated. We cannot be overcome. So flee to the Lord for refuge. Flee to the cross for mercy. Let us pray. Lord, we can't imagine what it was like living back in the time of the Assyrian Empire and Nineveh. The brutality, the heartlessness of uh, those pagan people at that time. And I'm sure that uh, many of your people in Israel and in Judah cried out for help and mercy. And for those who believe, even though they went into captivity for a number of years, you were there for them. You were their help in their time of need. And whatever our need is, God, and our greatest need is salvation. Our greatest need is to escape your wrath through Christ. And those who are in Christ will not be subject to that wrath because that has already fallen on our substitute, our Lord and Savior. So thank you, God, for the hope we have in the gospel. And may we trust in that gospel. May we, we, may we depend upon you. May we go from day to day to day in active, conscious dependence upon you, asking for your wisdom and help and your guidance. And help us, God, to be witnesses in this dark world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.